0: If you have your Bibles with you, turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. Luke 11 is where we will be this morning. I'm thinking of holding a basketball camp. What do you guys think? No? <laughs> Gary's no. <laughs> Why not? I mean, I read a couple of books and figure it out, right? You think, you seriously think nobody would want to learn basketball from me? I mean, I share the name with one of the basketball greats. We're, you know, Michael Jordan, Michael Lucena. Yeah, we share a name, right? Shouldn't that be enough? No. You know, it's funny. We want to learn things from people who do them well, right? You would not want to learn basketball from me. I promise you. You know, you remember the movie White Men Can't Jump? Yeah, that's me. (laughs) They were... (laughs) I'm not the only one, but yeah, I fall into that category. You know, we want to learn things from people who know how to do them, right? Which is fascinating to me that the disciples would ask Jesus how they should pray. I mean, think about all the things you could ask Jesus. This is a guy who healed people who were sick and lame and blind. They didn't say, Lord, teach us to heal. These are people who watch Jesus give incredible instruction with authority and power. And they didn't say, Lord, teach us to teach, teach us to preach, teach us to proclaim. They didn't do that. They don't come to Jesus asking him, how do we cast out demons? Lord, teach us to cast out demons. They don't do that. They come to him and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, now it must be if they want to know how to pray from Jesus, it must be that he, he must be pretty good at it, right? Because you don't ask me to teach you to play basketball. There might be other things that I'm much more qualified to teach you, but you're not going to learn basketball from me. You're going to go seek out someone who knows what they're doing, right? So they come to Christ and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. We read Matthew's version Today, we're going to preach through Luke's version. Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he was finished, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. One of the interesting things about John is that John taught his disciples. People have their ways of praying. And and you can hear it. Uh, If I were to ask everybody in here to pray publicly, and we were to compare the prayers, there would be some similarities. Probably a lot of us would pray some similar words or similar things. Or we might have a similar structure to our prayer. Thank, we would start by thanking him for different things he's given us. Thank you for this day. Thank you for giving us the chance to be together. That, those kinds of things. We would move on to asking for certain specific requests and and almost all of us would end our prayer in Jesus' name we pray. Amen, right? We we all kind of have a similar way of praying. But with John's disciples, they prayed a bit differently. John taught them to pray a little bit differently than what was common in the day. And so Jesus' disciples, seeing him pray, watching him as a man of prayer, recognizing that they need to learn to do that too, come to him and say, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Just like John taught his disciples to pray, Lord, Lord, we need to learn how to pray from you. Teach us to pray. Now, maybe they thought Jesus would give them a prayer to repeat. Maybe they thought Jesus would give them some instruction. All right, so pray like this and this and this and don't pray this and that and that, right? Maybe they didn't expect that what they were going to get were 38 words that would be so simple and yet so profound. I say 38. In English versions, it renders a little differently, but there's 38 Greek words in this prayer that Jesus is about to show them. 38. And yet it is so comprehensive. 38 words in which Jesus says, pray like this. Lord, teach us to pray. He says... Pray this way. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. It is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Let's pray. Father, teach us to pray in these your words. In Christ's name, amen. You know, there several things that I noticed about the prayer. Notice that it starts very personally, very intimately. Go back to verse two, please, Carrie. It's intimate and personal from the very first word. When you pray, say Father. Some people have said this is the, this comes from the Arabic word Abba. It does, but it, Abba is not, people say Abba just means it's like us saying Daddy. It's not quite like that. Think of something that is intimate, but also very reverential. Daddy doesn't quite care it's the relationship that's involved between father and son, but it's also the reverence and the awe that the son has for the father. The son recognizes the father's love. And as part of that love, it's crying out to him, knowing that he's going to take care of it, knowing that out of that relationship that his father is going to be good to him and provide for his needs. But also there's this reverence of knowing that, that, that he's not just someone to play around with and wrestle with, that he's someone who I should respect and love because of his love for me. And so it's intimate. It's personal. Father focused on God's priorities first. Look at this, hallowed be your name. The form of this is almost like a command, but you can't command God. And so you're really in, it's like a, it's what's called the imperative of entreaty. It's it's asking God, please let your name be hallowed. It kind of, well, the third commandment. Anybody know the third commandment? Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. What he's saying is, God, don't let me take your name in vain. God, protect your name so that we will not make it worthless. So we will not make it empty. God, protect your name so we will not defame it. How often we defame God's name, even when we don't use it as a cuss word. But we defame God's name by the way that we act. The way that we mistreat other people or the way that we're just, we don't even think about it. We're rude and we don't even realize it. How often we mistreat God's name by doing sin flippantly as though it doesn't matter. He's saying, God, help me not do that. Help me help me make sure that your name is hallowed in the way that I speak, in the way that I live. But more than that, in your entire world, don't let your name be defamed at all. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Echoing John's words in Revelation, he, he, he gets a sense of everything that God's going to do and he says, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Hurry up. I can't wait. And so we with anticipation are to pray along with John. Even so, come quickly, Lord. Please come. Your kingdom come. Matthew expands on earth as it is in heaven. God, let your kingdom come. We know that there is a future day when God's kingdom will be fully recognized. We also know there is a present day in which that kingdom is beginning to work in us, his people. God, let your kingdom come. Don't let us stop it. Don't let us get in the way of it. Don't let us prevent it. Don't let us challenge you and oppose it. God, let your kingdom come. May I add a couple of words? Let your kingdom come here in me. Let it be realized through me. These are God's priorities. These aren't my priorities. I don't come to God saying, God, this is what I want. I come to God saying, God, this is what you want. Let it be done. I come based on his will first. And it's out of his will that I then bring my petitions. But notice verse three. Notice the Notice the way he words this, no, it's plural, give us. It's a communal prayer. It's not a prayer on me, what I want, what I need. Someone, someone pointed out that um, when we are praying this prayer, we are praying on behalf of the entire community because we recognize that the blessings that we're seeking are not for us individually, they're for us communally. We're praying for all of us to have daily bread. We're praying for all of us, not just me, for us. We pray for us to be forgiven of sin. We pray that God would not lead us into temptation. It's communal. The your, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Those are singular, one. It's all about God. But then we turn from God to community and we say, now God, provide for us what we need. And it's, and it's not just uncommon needs, it's everyday needs. It's direct needs. Things like daily bread. You know, in those days, you don't cook bread for more than one day at a time. Everybody would cook what they need for that day. So they were dependent on God. There'd be a little bit of yeast, dough sitting out, so they could make bread from it. Only enough to make tomorrow's batch that we just make enough bread for today lord give us each day every day keep providing for us what we need for that day i heard someone say i don't think i can do this anymore i've done this for so long he he's talking about uh, a difficult job that he had and he didn't know if he could he could keep doing this day after day after day I, I, I don't know if i can make it throughout the end of this and and someone asked him can you can you do it today can you can you just do it for today just resolve for today. And sure enough, he found strength for today. That's all we really need. It's direct needs. It's common needs. It's needs that all of us have. And they're, and they're so they're so basic. It's so simple. It's not, he's, not, he's not worried about the grand scheme of affairs in the world. He doesn't pray for, for big, gigantic things for God to do. It's just simple. Lord, Lord give us enough food. It's interesting because this is the bread of life talking. Maybe he doesn't just mean food. Maybe, maybe he means give us what we need of God for that day. This is our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. This is an interesting one. It's the only one on which we are asking God to condition his part on what we do forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. We are asking God to forgive us in the same kind of way that we not only forgive others, but have already forgiven them because we're already setting it down and saying, I forgive them. There's one sense in which reconciliation cannot happen until forgiveness is sought. But there is another sense in which you can take the ball out of your court and say, God, I will forgive them. I cannot restore them until they seek it. But God, I will forgive them where I am and trust you to do the work in their heart to bring reconciliation. And he's saying we could do our part. And as we do our part, God, you you forgive us in the same kind of way. It's conditioned. Now, Rhetorical question, don't raise your hands. How many of you would like to see God forgive you the way you forgive others instead of the overwhelming forgiveness that He gives you that's much better than you can give others? Boy, it's something for us to strive for, isn't it? He's just praying to God and he's preaching through his prayer. He's he's praying to God and he's opening up the scabs. Don't worry. He's been picking at my scabs. He's been poking my my bruises. What an amazing prayer. 38 words in the Greek, but so pregnant with meaning. So old, and yet so timely, even today. So simple and so meaningful in so many areas of life. No wonder, no wonder we hold this prayer in such esteem. But the prayer itself is not Jesus' only instruction. He doesn't just say, all right, this is what you should pray. He though then goes on to describe for us the attitude with which we should pray. Um, to put it in Andrew Murray's words, if we are going to sit in this school of prayer with Christ as our teacher, we must not doze off in the first half of the lecture. So don't just take the prayer and say, okay, that's the prayer, that's, that's Jesus' instruction, now let's go home. Because he gives us more instruction that shows us the attitude with which we are to pray these prayers the attitude with which we are to say these words. Now, no Jew of that day, no honest Jew would say, you just repeat certain prayers and you're done. And that's it. That's all you got to do is say these certain words and God has to act and and he's, he, 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 you're forcing him to do what you want him to do. No Jew in his right mind would tell you in that day or in this day that just repeating the words is enough. Every one of them would recognize that there has to be more than just the speaking of the words. There has to be the attitude of the heart to go with it. And so what's that attitude? Well, not only does he point us in a model prayer, he, he shows us the attitude with a couple of parables. Look in chapter 11, verse 5. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight? And say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within. Do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Jesus lets out this 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 situation. Now, if let's say you got a friend. He comes to you in the middle of the night and says, I got someone who has come to me uh, uh, on a long journey, I've got no food to feed him. Now, this is a common occurrence, right? You cook enough bread for that day. By midnight, the bread is gone. You've eaten dinner. There's no more food left. And he comes to you and he's begging you to provide for him the bread because I don't have any more left. Maybe, can you spare some sugar? Can I get some milk from you? I've got a guest coming over and I ran out, right? Right? Basic hospitality would be like, yeah, sure. But what if it's midnight and everybody's in bed? And that day, um, you probably, this is probably a peasant's house. Because in that day, everybody's sleeping in one bed. You just lay this mat on the floor and the whole family sleeps in that one bed. Okay? that That's peasant life for you, okay? Everybody's already in bed. So now I'm going to walk all over everybody to try to get to the kitchen Risk waking up my kids that I finally got to sleep. Y'all don't know what that's like, do you? <laughs> I don't know why. But it seems like every night one of them will not sleep. Or, or if they all go to sleep, one of them wakes up an hour or two later just crying or screaming or something and, and it's, I don't know why. It's just, it seems like every night there's, there's some, somebody can't sleep in our house. You're gonna risk all that just to get this guy some bread? Yeah. Because it would be dishonorable if you didn't. There is a legitimate need at your door. And it doesn't matter the inconvenience it causes you. The codes of friendship and hospitality dictate that you must help them, right? That's that first century mindset. Today, we, we would just tell them to go to, go to a 24 hour Walmart or something and, and buy their bread, right? We, we don't think like that today. But in that day, Walmarts weren't open 24 hours. Walmarts weren't even open. You bake your bread, you don't buy it. If you do, then you're rich enough to buy it. What's amazing to me is that Jesus says, look, even in that case, even if you don't do it for friendship, just because of his impudence, just because of his lack of concern about waking everybody up and being a menace, just to make him go away, Whatever it takes, for whatever reason, it doesn't matter. You're still getting up to get him the bread. You're still inconveniencing yourself because you realize that the need is real. Good motives, bad motives, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter why you do it. You're going to do it. What does that teach us about prayer? Look in verse 11. This is the second parable. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? Raise your hand. How many of you keep serpents around for when your kids are hungry? Yeah? No? Nobody? Some of you might have a pet snake. That's okay. Keep him to yourself. Or if he asks for an egg, verse 12, well, instead give him a scorpion. Who among us, if our kid is hungry, is going to give him a poisonous animal to endanger his life? None of us would do that. What does that teach us about prayer, though? What does that teach us about prayer? What does a scorpion instead of an egg, a, a, a serpent instead of a fish. What does a guy getting up in the middle of the night just to get rid of this guy, knocking on his door, giving him a couple of loaves of bread. What do those teach us about prayer? Look back at verse two. I mentioned this before. How does this prayer start again? Father, you see, the basis of our prayer is our relationship with God. Through his son, Jesus Christ, we are all sons and daughters of God. He's brought us into his family by grace through faith. That means in prayer, we're able to say the same thing of God that Christ said, Father. We have that relationship. Now, our relationship isn't as good as Jesus's relationship with the Father is. We don't have as good of a relationship as exists within the Godhead. But, but that, that's our goal, right? We want to grow in relationship to be that kind of close to God. Okay. That's what we're striving for. That's what we're going for. And and we'll never quite be perfectly in harmony and union with God, but we can have closer and deeper relationship with him from now through all of eternity future. And it's out of that relationship that this prayer comes. It's out of that relationship that all prayer comes. Andrew Murray points this out with Christ in the school of prayer. I'm going through it. Last night I was reading, he was talking about that phrase, have faith in God. That is the predicate upon which our prayers are based. If there is no faith in God, how can we have faith in the promise of God? If there's no faith in God, where is the prayer based? Where is the root of that prayer? It's in faith in Him. It's in our relationship with God. That's where we get the nutrients that blossom into this beautiful life of prayer that Christ bids us to live. His Father, He has extinguished our sins and brought us near to Him. That relationship guarantees that we have His attention in prayer. A Father, no matter how busy, When the Son comes, must figure out a way to stop what he's doing and pay attention to the Son. Now some fathers do that much better than others, but our heavenly Father is an expert. When we come to Him in prayer, not only do we have His attention, we have His willingness to answer our prayers. God is not only willing to give us what we need, He's more willing to give us than we are willing to come ask for it. In fact, it brings Him joy. Brings Him joy give us what we need. Think think about the midnight visitor. The host seeks bread to feed his guests and the neighbor gives, you know, whatever. Whatever the motive is, he still gives. How much more will God give what we need? Verse 9, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open. How can he say that? How can he say ask and you will receive? How can he say seek and you will find? How can he say knock and it will be opened to you? How can he say those things? Because God will give. Now, don't hear me say whatever you want. No, no, no. We've already established that we are praying in God's will. God's priorities come first, okay? So now whatever you ask, because you have bent your will to match up with God's, whatever you're asking is God's will. See, if someone who's begrudgingly giving, willing to give, how much more is the one who joyfully gives? In the prayer, we begin by putting God's priorities first. Jesus set this example in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6.33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What things? The things you need. Food, clothing. God knows we need these things. He knows that. He knows that we will need provisions, both physical and spiritual. He knows that we have needs that we have not even comprehended yet. And when we prioritize God's kingdom, we find our requests align more and more and more with God's will, God's desires. And then we find our needs are met, not because we're seeking for them, but because we're seeking the one who provides them. We find sometimes he meets the need miraculously. George Mueller tells the story of not having food for his orphans. They sit down, he gets them all to the table. He prays God, provide for us the bread and milk we need. God provides. It's the bread guy. Hey, uh, I felt like you might need some extra bread, so I baked some extra and brought it by for you. It's the milkman. My truck broke down. All this milk's gonna go bad. Can y'all use some? Sometimes he does that. Sometimes he uses your sweat and your work to earn the money for the food. Doesn't matter. God still provides. Sometimes it's it's glorious Sometimes it's just ordinary, but God still provides. See, this is the goodness of God as our father. He's always caring for our needs. Think about the story of fathers in in verses 11 to 12. No father is going to give his child dangerous gifts when they need food to survive. Not even bad fathers do that. So, verse 13, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Even the most evil of people can muster good gifts for their kids. How much more will God, our father, our good father, give not only good gifts, but the, get, but the very best. I don't know if you realize this, but we have a how much more kind of a God Back, back a little bit earlier when he when he says, seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. A little bit earlier in that passage, he reminds us that not two sparrows fall without him knowing. He reminds us that, that he feeds the birds of the air. They don't toil, they don't work for it, but God still provides their food. How much more valuable are you than birds? How much more is God going to make sure that you who are more valuable than a bird are taken care of? A couple verses later, look at the lilies. Look at the grass of the field. They don't spin or toil. They don't make clothes. Jesus says, but not even Solomon in all his riches was arrayed like one of the lilies of the field. How much more is God going to care for you who are more valuable than grass and flowers? The writer of Hebrews points to the sacrifices that would take place in the temple day in and day out week in and week out, month in and month out, every year on the day of atonement, these sacrifices being altered for the purification of flesh over and over and over again. And he says, how much more will the sacrifice of Christ take care of not only the the purification of your flesh, but the purification of your consciences? How much more will he cleanse not just the outer body, but how much will he cleanse our souls? from the sin that decays us. We have a how much more kind of a God. We can see good things happen among evil people and we say these people are so evil, but even they can do the right thing sometimes. We have a how much more kind of God. How much more evidence do you need that God loves you and God cares for you and God wants you to bring your petitions to Him in faith? It's not just about God do these things. Amen. We need to learn how to pray. He yearns to teach us. He yearns to build the faith within us. He yearns for us to move beyond organ recital prayer times, where we just list off all the organs that are wrong, and all the people that we know, and ask God to heal them. He longs for us to move beyond prayer that is sloppy and weak. He longs for us to move past prayer that is rushed and ineffective. Prayer that is ritualistic. Prayer that's done at certain times because that's just the way we've always done it. He bids us to come with him into a life of prayer that is meaningful. Prayer that molds us to be like him. Prayer that Bids us come closer to the heart of God. Come closer to His throne. Come closer with your needs. Knowing in faith that He will provide what you need. Whether it's physical or spiritual or emotional or mental. Doesn't matter. He bids us to come into this life of prayer. Lord, teach us to pray. You know, what's interesting is nobody ever asked for the Holy Spirit in these stories. But what does it say God will give in verse 13? How much more will the heavenly father give his spirit, his holy spirit? God knows not only the needs that you express, he knows the needs that you are completely unaware of. And the greatest of those is his presence. God is waiting with gleeful anticipation to give you his spirit, living in you, directing your paths, molding you into his image. That is your greatest need. We're going to sing 638. It's I need the every hour. Guys, we have such a need of God that we, I don't even know how to express it to you other than to say you need God more than you need sweet tea or unsweet if you're diabetic. You need God more than you need the air that you're breathing. I know because I are one. I need him that much too. So so why don't today, why don't we just ask God, 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 give us what we need. Whether that's just daily bread whether that's, whether that's feeling the presence of His Spirit living in us, empowering us to do His will, Whatever that is, why don't we just ask God to provide for our need and to give us Himself. Can we do that? Stand with me and let's pray together. Father, we need You every hour. God, give us what we need. Help us come to You in faith. Those that have never chosen to make you Lord, God. I pray that they would do that now. Don't let them wait. Today is the day of salvation. God, those that have, help us see our need for you. Cry out with desperation as a, as a baby, desperate for food. As a child feeling the pains of hunger. As an adult lost, not knowing what to do. is desperate for guidance. God, help us realize we need you and give us what we need. Give us your spirit.